1: Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Belief in these unalienable rights largely unites America. How to achieve them does not. While the left argues an active state can guarantee more equal access to that American dream, conservatives hold the vision to be impossible without individual freedom and responsibility. But in a global pandemic, liberty is inevitably limited. The individual pursuit of happiness is on hold, under strict lockdowns and in some places behind obligatory masks. Government handouts attempt to safeguard our collective economic futures, but at what long-term cost? The arguments aren't only about the science or how we interpret data, they're bringing out divides in worldviews and tapping into contrasts in long-contested political philosophies. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how is the coronavirus changing American conservatism? My guest is Dan Crenshaw. Since 2018, he's been the Republican representative for Texas's second congressional district. Before that, he served 10 years as a Navy SEAL in Iraq and Afghanistan, badly wounded, losing the sight in his right eye, among other injuries. As a congressman since, he's been a prominent voice for a new generation of American conservatives, not of the Republican stripy tie model. He's at home in the skirmishes of social media, taking an allegedly oversensitive American left to task and getting some heat in return. He hosts the podcast Hold These Truths and he's author of a new book, Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. Congressman Dan Crenshaw, welcome to The Economist Asks.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you.
1: I'm talking to you from London. You're a transatlantic chap yourself, born in Aberdeen, no less. Uh, How come?
0: Well, uh, my Houston-based parents were living in Aberdeen at the time, uh, working in, as, as you might guess, the oil and gas industry. So hence my uh, somewhat Scottish roots. I don't, I don't really have any other family connections there. I was able to travel back to Aberdeen many, many years later when I was in high school and see where, where the little house on a farm that I was actually born in. I think I was born in a hospital. Just I'm to be missing clear.
1: the Ab- Abedonian accent. I think died away a few yeah, years back. Yeah, it would be I, I, to I say. can fake
0: it, but I'm not going to do that for your audience. It would probably probably be embarrassing.
1: I'll go on, it would be prize of the week. But how do you think that experience, that uh, transatlantic oil and gas, very sort of global industry, how has that shaped your worldview as you've grown up? Yeah,
0: well, it wasn't the only place I lived overseas. So we actually moved to Egypt right after that in Cairo. Again, I I remember very little of that. I was just a toddler. So I, I really remember growing up in Houston, Texas. Come middle school, I moved to Ecuador for about a year, again, following my dad's career in the oil and gas industry. And then all of high school, I lived in Bogotá, Colombia. So the majority of my teenage years were actually spent in South America. How did it shape me? Well, I, I suppose in a lot of ways. Um, it gives you some perspective, certainly. It helps you understand, uh, I think, how good you have it in a place like the United States. Especially at the time I was living in Colombia, they were still in a, in a pretty brutal civil war. This was—I I was living there nineteen ninety-eight to two thousand two. You know, it, it was not safe. You couldn't—you couldn't go outside the city. And I think it gives you an appreciation for simply understanding other cultures and, and learning to adapt rather quickly.
1: You're back in the house for the first votes in weeks on Friday, May the fifteenth. In the meantime, you've been busy with the launch of your new book. It's called Fortitude. It's just quite a, a strong, but to my ear, perhaps not a word that we use very frequently in, in language these days. How do you define the word?
0: As it would be defined by any definition, it basically means strength and resilience in the face of adversity. And it's interesting you say we don't use it enough anymore. Maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe that's why I wrote the book. Uh, because it's it's almost not viewed as a as a virtue anymore
1: it also comes directly out of your own experience doesn't it you're you've been a, a navy seal you've been injured in in service do you feel that fortitude arises from that Experience or do you think it's something more specific?
0: It it can arise from that experience. You know, I I use it's not an autobiography. I really just I draw upon my experiences to make my more philosophical case for how to build fortitude. Ultimately the book is is a how-to book. You don't have to have harsh experiences to build that fortitude. You know, you don't you don't have to get blown up by an IED and lose your eye like I did in Afghanistan to gain some perspective. I use those extreme examples because they're just what I know. But I also point out very clearly that you don't need them. You just need to understand that they're out there, that no matter how bad you have it, somebody else has it worse, and they've overcome it. Not only do they have it worse, but they've overcome it with grace. And knowing that truth, I think, helps you persevere.
1: Let's look at this dichotomy of resilience versus outrage or fortitude versus outrage which guides your book just to be a bit blunt are you suggesting that a lot of young people today or people you think have got gone off on the wrong track politically today are complaining too much
0: it might be simplistic to say they complain too much maybe maybe teenagers and young people have complained too much for all of eternity um but but i think i think the difference now is that there's this there's this sort of notion that words can actually hurt you Like there is physical harm from being offended. And that's a really dangerous thing. That's the sort of brittle, fragile nature. And and it's a new thing that I think has occurred and that my book seeks to rectify.
1: But is this a kind of, you talk about something that emerges around 2013, more or less. And it is, I suppose, often seen by critics as the idea of an exaggerated offence taking. Perhaps the counter argument is that words can hurt. I mean, <laughs> haven't you been hurt by words and words that should have been avoided?
0: Yeah, but, but not in the way that they're suggesting. No, they can literally not hurt you, not in the physical harm kind of way. Listen, and, and, and part of being hurt emotionally or being offended, it is a part of growing up. And, and the case I make is that there is, there is true value from hardship. And our, our society has sort of encouraged us to run from hardship and run from suffering in the most extreme of ways. And, and part of that is good. Part of that is just modern society. It is far more comfortable than any other time in human history. There's just no debating that. That's fine. No, nobody wants to go back to a harder time. What I want people to understand is that there have been much harder times and that we're perhaps complaining about smaller things to an exceptional degree.
1: The coronavirus pandemic is, if ever there was a test of fortitude, you could say that this is it, at least in, in modern times. How do you think America is holding up?
0: It's a mixed bag. Listen, I I think at the ground level, I think your average American is is ready to confront risk. We understand more about this virus than we did before. And I think people understand that the costs are becoming extremely high. So there's this debate going on between the perpetual lockdown crowd and the reopen the economy in a safe way side. I'm obviously on the side of reopen the economy in a safe way. I'm not saying that every single municipality has to do that the exact same rate. I think New York City is, is clearly in a different situation than other places, but it is the only place that is in that situation. And so this notion that we should be locked down perpetually, I think, is not based on science. It's not based on data, and it's certainly not based on common sense. And it's based on fear. From the national discussion, from the political conversation, I, I, I think we've, we've overstepped quite a bit not saying it was unjustified at first, but I think with the understanding that we have now, it's, it's gone a little too far.
1: And how far and how fast to reopen? That really does go to the, the core of an argument over personal versus collective responsibility. We've seen thousands of people demonstrating against lockdowns, an opinion very strongly divided on that. Is this, to your mind, a, a kind of reiteration of a political? preference that very broadly speaking, if you move leftwards, you find people happier with the idea that things should be you know, should be very gradual. And as you move to the right, the argument about getting back to work just seems to become more intensely engaged. So is this simply another example of new divisions of left and right?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting how it has fallen along partisan lines. I'd actually be very curious to hear how, how it is um, divided in Britain as well. There's two reasons why that is. One is political, one is psychological. So on the political side, there's a few things that occur. Uh, First of all, anything that Donald Trump is for, the liberals will be against. That is ultimately true no matter what. That's a partial explanation. Another partial explanation is this. Most, Most liberals tend to pack themselves into cities, and it's ultimately a little bit more dangerous inside of cities, especially really crowded ones like, say, Chicago or New York. Whereas conservatives are, tend to be in the more rural areas, and uh, it, it seems obvious to these conservatives that they should be allowed to be free because, you know, they can operate in social distancing on a daily basis anyway. The other thing is that this overwhelmingly harms uh, high school educated workers and really doesn't harm a lot of college educated workers who can just work from home. So it's really easy to tell everybody else to be locked down when you can just comfortably work from home and you're still getting a paycheck. Okay, and those tend to be liberal voters.
1: To answer in the British context, I would say I think you're right. I think, you know, everything is a little bit more, sometimes a great deal more exaggerated in terms of a divide in America. But I think in terms of a mentality, you're not wrong. I think it reads across. It'll be interesting what what listeners think. But broadly speaking, and also that sense of collective responsibility, not surprisingly, perhaps tends to weigh more on the left of centre and lost opportunity, chance to kind of innovate your way out of crisis more to the right. Maybe we shouldn't be so surprised.
0: Well, that gets the psychological reasons that I was going to get to. And it's a sort of a notion of liberty. The left and the right really view liberty differently. You'll hear the following from leftists quite a bit. You'll hear that, well, you can't be free unless you have free this or this service or this service. They'll say that quite often. You can't be free. Whereas on the right, we think, well, that's a, that's a crazy thing to say. Because we view freedom as personal responsibility. We view freedom as the ability to pursue our happiness, as is written in our Declaration of Independence. You know, you guys remember that. <laughs> Sorry, I have you gotta get these so, in every Nothing once in personal
1: a while. there, Congressman. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> um, and,
0: and so, and so they, the left would rewrite the Declaration of Independence to say, make you happy. We would keep it the same and say, pursue your happiness. There's an element of personal freedom there that is extremely important to conservative thinkers. And the leftist views that very differently. They're very much more comfortable with much more government control, telling you what to do, telling you how to be safe. As a conservative would say, if you don't want to go to a restaurant, don't go to a restaurant. You know, like you, you don't tell other people they can't work. Don't tell other people they can't go out. This is nonsense. And we also look at the data here. Again, the, the entire purpose of the lockdowns is to save our medical system and make sure it's a the curve. Those missions were accomplished a long time ago. Our, our medical system was never overwhelmed. It's time to move on.
1: Where it then gets interesting, I think, in the American political context is whose responsibility then is it to enforce these these regulations, even taking on board that conservatives are going to feel differently to left liberals and there'll be gradations here. But we've seen very different paths here. Some people calling on federal government to either you know, sweepingly shut things down or open the entire country. Now, there have also been mixed messages from the White House about this. Do you feel that, that it's a mixed message from uh, Donald Trump in the end, the big message giver here? Or do you think he knows what he wants? There was a
0: time, I think he said it once, um, you know, one time suggested he could reopen the economy. There was some backlash from probably fellow conservatives on that. So yeah, there, I think there was a very short period of a mixed message there. But I wouldn't say there's continuous mixed messaging. It, it's It's pretty clear to me that you know, the federal government cannot shut down the entire country, nor can it reopen the entire country. That being said, we are all very vocal about say what California is doing. You know, in Los Angeles, they just extended lockdowns for three months. That that's an insane thing to do, considering their cases and considering their empty hospitals. Where are they getting this data? Where how are they interpreting this data? What kind of what kind of reasoning are they using here? Because the, the consequences of these lockdowns are absolutely devastating. The entire world is seeing that.
1: You've talked about smart reopening in a Texas context. Businesses would reopen at limited capacity, etc. Well. 25 percent, say, in estates, urban areas, that is also taking on board some degree of risk. So I suppose that might be the broad answer to this. Well, it's, you know, have they gone overboard in terms of lockdown in the California model? Would you accept that if you're talking about smart reopening, we might not be collectively smart enough to get it right?
0: I think on an individual basis, people are smart enough. As government, I don't believe we have the right to ask that question for the most part. OK, you don't you don't get to decide whether people are smart enough to provide for themselves and keep themselves safe. That was never part of the contract between the government and the consent of the governed. OK, so that's the first thing. The second thing is Texas tends to do it pretty smart. As usually we lead the way. Now, we did have some help from the UK. OK, we had a few Scotsmen at the Alamo. OK, let me remind all of your listeners. So we're very we're very proud of that fact. And we love this our is Scots the show men. that
1: is not afraid to range across the centuries. Right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so. You know, yeah, we're opening up a 25% capacity. That's quickly going to move to 50% capacity, uh, looks like by the end of the week or next week. And guess what? The world is not ending. Things are going along just fine. Because people well, we understand. don't really
1: know how, whether it works well, do we? Because we have also seen clusters of new infection among construction workers in, in Austin, for example. And there will example. be. And, and
0: there will be. Right. And there will be. And, and of course, there will be new infections. This is the honesty that has to be talked about with, with people around the world. Okay, the area under the curve remains the same. Let's remind everyone. We wanted to flatten it. The reason for flattening is not to overwhelm our healthcare systems. We all saw what happened in Italy and it terrified everybody. But as it turns out, at least here in America, and especially here in Texas, and our healthcare system was never overwhelmed. And in fact, it's having the opposite effect. Our healthcare system is so underwhelmed that it risks failing anyway because nobody is going to get procedures.
1: Well, that's true. That this is not it is not cost free to simply restrain economic activity. But just to be clear, if you're saying if there were another spike partly because you would allow many more people to go back into circulation into the the workplace, et cetera, that you wouldn't then have another lockdown. So that would seem to me to be a little counterintuitive because you would be saying kind of you take your chances. That does sound slightly more risky.
0: No, it's not take your chances. That's a very very casual way to put it, but it is more risky. Listen, we live with risk. I could say I want to say 40,000 people a year from car deaths. You know, I want to be the most moral person. And if you disagree with me, you're immoral and you want to risk people's lives. All I want to do is reduce the speed limit to 20 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. But it would be absurd. And my detractors would point out, well, wait a second. We know we're taking risk, and we have tools to mitigate that risk. We have lanes. We we drive on the right side of the road, not the left, because that would be crazy. You know, we have ways to actually mitigate this risk. This isn't that different. You have to allow people the tools to engage in risk in a a personally responsible way. This is how we've dealt with risk our entire existence. For some reason, there's this notion that we should completely change that now and ignore all the costs. And it's, it's really baffling.
1: But it's because of the scale of what is at stake, isn't it, on both sides, on the health and the economic side of the balance sheet here. And on the economy, we're in New Deal sort of territory the president is signing bailout checks and hand over fist. We've got 2020 deficit projection at almost $4 trillion, up uh, from $1 trillion at the beginning of the year. What do you see then as the consequences of this down the line? I mean, do you see... In a nutshell, conservatives are going to have to embrace tax rises. A lot is going to have to change.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fiscal issues here are are absolutely devastating. And it kind of goes back to my point. We don't have any more money to spend. This money is being printed or borrowed from our children. And that's not sustainable uh, in the least. And so, you know, when we come back to Washington to vote on Friday for this insane bill, a $3 trillion bill proposed by Democrats as they wrote it in secret, It's based on this sort of false reality that that you can basically allow the economy to crumble and put people on a government paycheck. You're effectively making everyone an employee of the state.
1: Well, that's actually a challenge I wanted to to put to you, which is that at some level, the GOP does have to embrace a form of big government. It is already doing so. and, And philosophically, politically, that's a test to conservatives. But even if you don't buy into the health argument creates a more collectivized society, the economic costs most surely do if government has to intervene at this level.
0: Yeah, it depends on how you're defining big government. Nobody denies that the a role of federal government is to swoop in for emergency situations. There wasn't any conservatives that were truly opposed to the initial bailouts. And understand what we mean by big government. And this is where liberals always get it very, very confused. i was surprised by this. We don't get upset when the government is spending money necessarily. What we don't want is for government to be controlling your life. Well,
1: sure, but I mean, once government gets involved, and this has been a good conservative argument down the years, that once you have big government signing the checks, then big government will get bigger in other ways too. Oh,
0: 100%. I mean, believe me, we're always worried about that as well. And we should be looking for opportunities at deregulation. But some of the biggest lurches forward in, in combating this virus and the pandemic have been deregulatory in nature, for instance. Uh, in our country, telemedicine has leaped forward like seven years. Just amazing. And all we had to do was deregulate it to allow doctors to engage in telemedicine. And it's been fantastic. And the FDA has obviously uh, moved forward rather quickly with a lot of approval. So there's not a very huge case for more big government, given what we've seen so far.
1: Do you see this then as, as a moment when conservatism, along with lots of other ways that people look at the, that the world, has to change? Surely there are challenges to any ism when something like this sweeps across the world and across America, what's the challenge to conservatism from coronavirus? Well,
0: I, I mean, I think moving forward, again, we, we have an enormous debt that the only way to get a handle on it from a mathematical perspective is entitlement spending. And that's, that's our social security and Medicare and Medicaid driving our spending to enormous proportions and ultimately putting my generation in, in, in more debt than we can possibly handle. So it's always been the conservative argument that we have to have reasonable reforms to those things. I don't think that part changes. I, I, I'm not sure that there's any credence to the idea that a more centralized government would have done better in the face of a pandemic. In, in you fact, see people, seems, some
1: people do say the response is so disaggregated.
0: Yeah, as it, as it should be. How would you? How could you possibly argue for a centralized response for a country of 330 million people? If anything, the system as it is, when it comes to disaster preparedness and disaster relief, the way our system works, the federal government is there to subsidize the, the costs that are too impossible to quickly muster at a local and state level, but those are managed by localities and states, and to do otherwise would be pretty absurd. Why would you, why would you try to manage New York City the same way you would manage Houston? The notion of federalism hasn't changed. In fact, I think this, this pandemic made a stronger argument for it. Our, our civics lessons are not teaching kids what they should be teaching them. And instead, every time somebody has a problem, they think, well, who's my member of Congress? Well, no. Guess what? You have a lot of you have a lot of people between your member of Congress and you that should actually be affecting your life. And, and, and I see that just as a member of Congress, I see how people don't understand where problems should be solved.
1: And that's also because it- it is contested sometimes where, where power really lies or what, what is the most effective way to No, it's to actually not.
0: It's actually not. We have a constitution that tells us exactly where power lies.
1: Well, Yeah, okay. Well, all right, the gap between theory and practice is well known to conservatives. The relationship with Donald Trump's brand of republicanism, you said earlier, I think, something along the lines of, well, liberals wouldn't like any response of, of Donald Trump. And there's some truth in that. You know, there is a knee jerk for certain people. But what's your relationship like with Donald Trump's brand of Republicanism.
0: Well, I, mean, I I call him out when I disagree with with something pretty vociferously, and but for the most part, I support his policy agenda. You know, I, I don't view him as this as some kind of um, you know spiritual guide by any means. His style is not my style. That, that's that's pretty clear as well.
1: What do you mean by his style in in that context?
0: Oh, well, he's bombastic. He takes a lot of fights. He, he doesn't let anything go. Um, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. And, and I think that gets him into trouble, of course. But that, that, that's the way he is. He's not changing. And so, you know, that question Republicans always get is he acts this way. How can you support him? And I'm like, well, what is it you want me to? Do you want me to fight him every single time? Do you want me to engage in the outrage culture that you're engaging in? What's the point of that? He does something I'm really opposed to. I, I have no problem saying it. And, and also the reason we have a you know, somewhat good relationship is because I can disagree with him, but I don't have to insult him too many people just insult him. And he lashes back and it's, you know, it's, it creates the, the political firestorm that we that we witness every day.
1: Uh, uh, the electoral coalition that has come behind President Trump working class, uh, white Americans, pro-business, pro-lower tax, wealthier people, this has been very powerful. I mean, it's not, it's not the only uh, parts of this coalition, I should say, that brought him to, to power. Do you think it will survive what looks like being an extremely sharp recession, bordering possibly on a depression? Well, it's a good question.
0: It really depends on what happens in the next six months, which is a political lifetime. It's going to be hard. There's some interesting indications already. So we're seeing in California, in LA County of all places, there's a really good chance that Mike Garcia, a Republican, flips that seat from blue to red right now in that special election. So what is that telling us? It might be telling us one thing for sure, that voters are sick of being governed by Democrats. And now they see in during this crisis what that looks like. The Democrats want you to stay at home and they promise you to keep spending more of your kids' money by sending you checks. Okay, that is not fundamentally what people want. People want to be told that they are responsible for themselves and can be trusted to engage in risk and go back to work. That might be what this special election today is telling
1: us. It might be. It's a bit of a sweeping description of Democrats. A lot of the sort of Democrat instincts that you tilt against are those of sort of new left Democrats. AOC, Bernie Sanders, maybe more readily than Joe Biden. So is it the case that actually your, your argument is against a subset, really, of the, the Democratic Party or the Democratic movement? I, think I would have thought on oh, quite a lot of things that you say, you wouldn't have got violent disagreement from Biden.
0: Well, I'm not so sure that's true. It's, it's hard to tell where Biden's at these days. It um, doesn't say a whole lot. Here's some truth also that I've noticed in my time in Congress, you know, in my one term where this sort of new left really rose to power. And we all thought that there would be this violent disagreement between the supposed moderates on the Democratic side and these these far leftists. And uh, and to some extent internally there is, but it's more like resentment. It's more like resentment between them because AOC does her own thing and it, it does annoy certain Democrats. And by the way, in person, you're absolutely right. In person, you just have great conversations with them. And I do believe, that there's many of my friends across the aisle, that if it was just me and them, if it was only us governing, that we'd probably come to some reasonable conclusions and negotiations. In practice, however, it just doesn't even come close to that. Friday, we'll see. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe all of these moderate Democrats will, will vote against this crazy bill. But as it turns out, the people who are outwardly against it right now are the far left because it doesn't go far enough. I think that far left cabal that you, that you talk about I'm not using them as a red herring, right? I'm not, I'm not using them to define the party. They've defined themselves as part of that cabal because they've been swept up by it. If you're running as a moderate liberal and you want to do nice things for people and you just want to solve problems, well, nowhere in there did I hear limiting principles. Nowhere in there did I hear any kind of principles of government or a framework with which to solve problems. And so what tends to happen is I watch these good people who are my friends get up to Congress, vote for whatever the far left tells them to vote for. Because that's who's in control. That's what has all the social media power. And to go against that is very detrimental to their political career. And they didn't really have solid principles to to fall back on in the first place. That's the problem.
1: President Trump secured the OPEC plus deal last month, trying to shore up oil prices and protect the US oil industry. And of course, you're speaking to us there from, from the heart of it. We've seen big challenges in the industry, Shell withholding its dividend, etc. for the first time in many decades, preparing perhaps for the post-oil future. What does the post-oil... Oil world look like where you're sitting.
0: Well, if you want a post oil world, then you should probably say goodbye to basically everything that you're using right now that has some kind of plastic in it or, or chemical in it or or what have you. Um, so I'm not so sure there is a post oil world necessarily. But you know what I've told the White House is you know why we would certainly appreciate the efforts in the OPEC Plus deal. It still hasn't helped. There's a, obviously an enormous drop in global demand, and it's hurting our industry to an exceptional degree. Well, here's the reality. In the next 20 years, you're still going to get an upward surge of about 20% more demand for energy. So if you think solar and wind are going to provide that energy, well, you're crazy and you're also anti-science for believing that because it's impossible. So you're going to have to have oil and gas. And so you have a couple choices. You either have America as a primary energy producer, cleaner energy producer, especially with our natural gas and our fracking industry. Or you can have Russian natural gas, which on a life cycle basis has 41 percent more carbon emissions than American natural gas. So if you can't tell, I've got some opinions on this and I have the science and data to back it up.
1: I'm not surprised you have. But surely there is something. There has got to be a bit of a balancing argument from conservatives about how they see climate change beyond that view that everybody else is worse than, than domestic production. So if you're at the same time supporting withdrawal from the Paris Accords, may not be the way to go but it was one possible way to go do, would you accept that there is still work to do in the conservative movement or what the solutions would be oh
0: yeah absolutely so my bill, my bill is called the new energy frontier it's technology based it's innovation based that particular bill right now is really the doa grant money for carbon capture technology so just outside of Houston here we have a couple amazing pilot programs One actually takes in natural gas, makes electricity from it, and has zero carbon emission. It powers about 5,000 homes. Investing in workable technology and scaling that up and then exporting it to the world, that's how you solve carbon emissions. Let's, Let's talk about Paris Climate Agreement for just one second. This year, according to that, I think we had to reduce emissions by like 7%. We're going to reduce emissions by a lot this year globally but like five, 5 or 6%. So it still doesn't even meet the Paris climate accord. So it just goes to show you how unrealistic and foolish it was to begin with. And guess what? That entire time under that agreement, China and India could keep polluting as much as they want. I mean it was But just-
1: that's there was still an argument therefore for engaging with it. Right. Pulling back from it might have been the tactical misstep. Yeah, it's a
0: thought. Um, I I don't think I don't think the Chinese have ever been uh, good global actors. And and I think they've proved that yet again over this coronavirus issue. So I don't think trusting them was ever on the cards. Why? Why would they? I mean, according to the agreement itself, they could keep polluting. So they had never had any incentive. Here's what they would have an incentive to do. Actually use better, cheaper, cleaner energy that we that we export to them. You know, this is why in the recent trade deals, we asked that they buy more natural gas, you know, so that's part environmental and it's part better for our economy. And if you can have a win-win, why wouldn't you? And again, I'm for all of the above, right? I think we should be investing in nuclear. I think we should be investing in geothermal. And there's other ways for clean energy to take place that don't destroy our economy. And that's what Republicans are for.
1: Before we let you go, as you've said, one way or the other, whoever wins this big argument in America and beyond lockdowns won't be permanent at some point it would be eased off i feel that i should uh, head to texas and maybe drop in and you see what's going on there where would you like to go given that you've grown up between aberdeen colombia ecuador and houston
0: i haven't done a book tour so you know maybe there's a lot of places i would like to, to go and, and, and do a book tour haven't been to london since about 2004 i'm sure it's changed quite a bit so maybe that would be fun but I would probably immediately try to get out to some mountains or beaches. I don't care where they are. But the more likely scenario, by the way, is that I, uh, I'm stuck here working and campaigning instead of traveling.
1: <laughs> Did you not make one fundamental mistake by not being born in the USA? Because it's cut off one, one of the big
0: jobs. Oh, I get that question all the time. Um, no, the, the way it's written is it's is a naturalized citizen. So I, I was never a UK citizen. I was always a U.S. citizen. So the, the rule is actually that you're born a U.S. citizen. Ted Cruz kind of had to deal with this same issue. He was born in Canada. Uh-huh. So I'm, a, so I'm so actually okay.
1: Still, yeah. you you <laughs> naturalized in the USA on the road to the presidency. <laughs> we'll see about that. I didn't
0: say that. I just said I, uh, it's, it's not closed to me.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan Crenshaw, for joining us.
0: Hey, it was really great to be with you. Big fan of y'all. Been reading you a long time.
1: And we'd love to know what you think Are Liberals and Conservatives really divided over how to handle coronavirus and who's on the right side. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. We'd love to see more of you. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.